Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Jonathan Levi. Jonathan is all about accelerated learning, improving your memory, and basically learning how to learn better. And in this conversation, we talk exactly about that. We talk about some of the common roadblocks to learning and some really cool stuff when it comes to incorporating speed reading in your life, improving your memory. We talk about the term visual fluency and what that means, as well as memory palaces. If you've never heard of that, it's a really cool thing. So I'm just going to get out of the way and say thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Levi. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Jonathan Levi. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are uh, you are also a productivity person, although you're coming at it from a different angle. You're, you're coming at it from uh, an accelerated learning perspective, which, you know, what is productivity other than learning how to do things better? And and, and in fact, you're you're all about learning, learning better <laughs> in, yeah, in a weird well, way. That's a weird statement. We to say, also but. do some productivity stuff yes. to be fair. But, uh, you know, I got into this whole world with the learning how to learn. And then I used that skill to learn all the kinds of productivity stuff. Cause you know, if you're a kid who grows up with ADD and, and you feel like you can't get a whole lot done, the first thing you're going to do is be like, wait a minute, can I, can I use this skill to, to do other stuff better too. And it, it turns out you can. Yeah. Well, let's go there. Um, you know, you mentioned ADD or ADHD, I should say is really the more common term these days. What is your backstory in, in regards to, you know, how you grew up and your struggles and how you got interested in the learning how to learn better? I, growing up, was a really happy kid, uh, you know, got along well, had great parents, uh, had good friends. 
until about uh, second grade when all of a sudden it started to be a problem that I couldn't really pay attention in class and I wasn't getting things as fast as other kids seemed to be getting it. And I just, you know, I was I was coming in a lot at recess and, and having to had, have things explained to me more than once. And so along about second grade, my parents had me tested for a DD. Uh, back then, people didn't talk about the H part. I actually don't have hyperactivity so much, but I definitely drift off. I definitely lose interest in things really quickly. Um, and then they quietly kind of decided, yeah, he probably has ADD. Let's not medicate him, which I understand the decision. And everything was kind of okay. I was never the brightest kid in class. Um, you know, I struggled, but I managed to catch up because I had really good teachers until sixth grade when all of a sudden school was this hard and scary place. And now even the subjects that I was getting by okay in like English, I was behind. And I wasn't just behind in the classroom, I was behind outside of the classroom as other kids were learning social skills and skills of speaking to the opposite sex and how to get along well on sports teams and all these other things that allow adolescents to create an identity and have self-esteem, I wasn't able to learn. So by the end of seventh grade, I was in really, really bad depression. I was contemplating suicide because I just couldn't be proud of anything and therefore I was really unhappy with who I was. Um, fortunately, I decided to stick around. There was an intervention involved, which is one of the more painful memories of, of my young life. Um, and I decided that if I was going to stick around, I need to figure out how to be a, a the kind of person that I want to be and the kind of person that I'll be happy looking at in the mirror. And it wasn't an overnight thing, Eric. I mean, as you know, you're in the personal development space. It's easy to go back and say, in that moment, I decided. But really, it's a series of moments. Yeah. And it started this lifelong journey around personal development that I'll, I'll never forget the day my great uncle Ernie, for example, handed me a book and said, this will help you in every aspect of your life. And I thought that was interesting because up until now, you know, most of the books that I'd read had been fiction books, children's books, or books that I was reading in school. I never encountered this idea that words on a page could actually make me a better person in my day-to-day -day life. And that book was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And from there, I started reading more and more and more. But I always struggled. And I was actually medicated from the age of 15 onward just to be able to sit still and learn and study in classrooms. And I would still forget everything that I'd learned the minute I left the classroom. So believe it or not, I actually got, almost got held back in 11th grade math as well uh, because I just, I couldn't keep up medication or no medication. So all of this is to say I, uh, I managed medication really helped me sit still and, and I couldn't, pay attention as well or understand as well, but I had a, a new trick, which was I would go home and I would lock myself in my room and take more medication and then just catch up to what everyone else was learning in class. And that took me pretty far and I was able to graduate high school. I think that's the only reason I was able to graduate high school. I was able to get into a good school for college and, and finish college. But later on down the line, I got accepted to an MBA and I knew that my old trick wasn't going to work because an MBA is so much about the connections you make, the friendships, the networking, the going to all different kinds of seminars and the traveling. And so I knew before I even went to the program, they gave me 1500 pages of reading and they told me, yeah, this should allow you to get a head start on the first week. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, I'm not going to be able to lock myself in a bedroom and, and catch up. And it was along about that time that I got very fortunate and I met 
an expert in accelerated learning, speed reading, and memory, who he and his wife had spent years refining some of these techniques and even working with kids who had ADD. So I obviously, it was a shut up and take my money kind of moment for me. And I hired them as private coaches and it changed everything for me. Um, I then took that skill and wanted to learn more about learning. So I dove deep into the neuroscience. I dove deep into the world of memory competition and the worlds of speed reading. And I've spent years and years and years since then learning more about how we learn and also how we can apply learning as kind of a master key to getting whatever it is we want in life. That's fascinating. There's some similarities. I won't go, I won't go and like touch on every touch point, uh, you know, similarity wise between, uh, your story and my story, but let's just say there are some. And, uh, th- this is one of those things for me where that's why I got into productivity. Whereas, you know, to figure out how to cope with my own, mm-hmm. uh, ADD. Again, I didn't really ever have much of the H unless I was antsy about sitting still. Uh, and, you know, kind of felt trapped in a cubicle or trapped in a classroom right. chair or whatever. Um, you know, that, that my mind would go wandering. But, uh, yeah. And, and, and so the productivity thing, that's when, you know, I'd start to write lists while I was sitting in high school class or college classes. Cause yep. then at least I'd oh, feel I productive. That. You know what I mean? Then I'd at least feel productive. I totally do that. You know, and I'm a prolific pen spinner as well. Like, <laughs> so I guess on, if, if you can consider that hyperactivity, I'm always spinning yes. pens and fidgeting. I, I can't sit still, no matter how interesting the content is in that regard. But I'm definitely not bouncing up and down. And I've seen some people with AD and the H in the ADHD. And I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm not hyperactive compared to that. <laughs> And I know here's the thing, like uh, we can we could spend some time. We're not going to, but we could spend 30 seconds on this or a minute uh, debating the whole. Look, we both have had uh, issues with the whole ADD, ADHD thing, mm-hmm. uh, especially in classrooms, especially when it comes to having to stay in a stationary place and focus on what is being, quote, taught. But I think we also, (laughs) you know, yeah, exactly. I I think, though, we would both agree there's potentially, I think, actually, I know we'd agree. There's something broken, though, about that style of teaching slash uh, expectation of that's how you, quote, learn. Yes. Yeah, so so much. And, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't blame teachers. I first want to go out and say that I don't blame teachers because it's like blaming doctors when a doctor today is supposed to spend five minutes with their patient in some countries. 15, if you're lucky, is an, is a doctor's appointment. Like how well are you supposed to get to know the human being? And, and teachers are supposed, they have 30 students in a classroom now. And the, the fact of the matter is with our education system is it's been designed for efficiency, not effectiveness. And it's the same with our food system, by the way. The way we got to where we are as a species is by looking at efficiency and mass production and industrialization. And so our education is industrialized education where, you know, a lot of the stuff that I talk about in my books is 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 really understanding the individual learner and tailoring, and, and this is just the high level, right? Not talking about memory techniques and things like that, but tailoring the learning experience. We know from a ton of research that people learn when the experience is tailored to them, that it's catered to their prior experience, it's leveraging their prior experience, it's customized to them, and it's customized to their wants, needs, desires, and intended applications. And that's, you know, it would be hard for a teacher to do that for one student. 
much less 30. So I don't, I don't blame teachers, but the system is definitely broken. And I have to say, you know, between you and me, productivity geeks, Eric, I'm really hoping that the breaking point for this is going to be technology and, and especially things like artificial intelligence where we can actually, we have the computing power to tailor a curriculum for tens of thousands or millions of students in the country and say, this is how Eric needs to learn it versus how Jonathan needs to learn it. That's going to be really interesting. But you're absolutely right. There, there are so many problems with the way we learn today. And, and one of them, by the way, is because of, because we're going for that efficiency, learning is done in this, in this, I call it train through a night, train through the night learning, right? Learn it once. Okay. You're done trigonometry. Let's go on to the next thing. And then you never review it. And, and even within the learning of it, it's done in a very kind of unengaging way because it's just more efficient to have one teacher lecturing, you know, uh, 30 students as opposed to each student engaging with the material and, and getting their hands dirty, so to speak. So, uh, there are a lot of problems and I think the onus is on us, whether it's as individual learners, as parents, as mentors, as educators to try and solve those at the micro level, because at the macro level, it's going to take some time. For sure. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, like I keep, well, I, my daughter, uh, started high school this year and I, I just keep looking at what she is doing. Uh, she's excelling in some areas. She's not in others. And, you mm-hmm. know, I'm looking at it and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I remember this phase for myself. How can I help her learn to take, even learn herself how to tailor yes. what she's been given? Uh, or, or, you know, how, how can I, you know, can I ask certain questions to her to pivot this stuff, uh, whatever curriculum it is, whichever subject it is towards mm-hmm. something I'm aware that she is excited about. And it doesn't even have to be that she's excited about it because some, you know, cause let's face it. Sometimes we have to learn things and review things and, you know, that we, that we don't want to, or we don't of want course. to have to, we, we, we have to, but cause that's life. You know, or at least up until a certain point, you know, then when you're an adult, adult right. you can kind of, you know, <laughs> you can niche down. But my point being is that it's this, uh, I, I, I want to figure out a way to almost Mr. Miyagi it to her where, you know, we do something fun that's experiential. And then suddenly she realizes, you know, oh, wax on, wax off. Wait, I just learned karate. What? And exactly. it, apl- and it applies. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And, and you're spot on. It really is a matter of having the learner realize. I would, I guess, turn it around a little bit though, which is you remember in, in Karate Kid, the kid's like, why am I doing this? Yes. And we all do that as our brains are maturing. So I would turn it around and, and, you know, it's like Simon Sinek says, start with why. You really want the learner to understand from the beginning. I mean, even if someone were to go in and say, look, I know you think that trigonometry is not useful. Well, trigonometry, I actually have a bone with, which is why I picked, <laughs> I picked on it so many times already in this interview. But if someone were to go in and say, look, I know you think you're not going to use algebra, but here are situations in life in which you will. And let's just talk for, you know, the first day of algebra class, let's talk for 30 minutes about like, what are the careers that people in the room want to go into? Because by now you're, you know, uh, 14 or 15 and society expects you to already know what you want to do. But what are the careers we want to go into and how, how might algebra help us in those situations? That would make such a difference. It's such a simple thing and it would cost one day of class, you know, to do that and then check in from time to time. Um, and instead of doing these, you know, Bob and Jill have five Apple questions, let's do some practical questions. You know, the, the train leaving from St. Louis is such a beat down problem. What if we were to do real world problems so that students like your doctor or your daughter, I'm sorry, could say, okay, this is interesting. And if I do want to go into programming, this is exactly the kind of problem I'm going to be facing. 
Yes, yes. And I think that's that's the point there is that it kind of gets back to why the skill or the most important skill, as you often refer to it, uh, of learning, Mm -hmm. why it is so important. It's because if you can learn to learn, and, and we're not just talking like, you know, learn to think for yourself and, you know, buck the system and all that kind of stuff. No, we're talking about like actually learning to uh, assess slash, I don't know, what's what's the best way to put this in terms of your surroundings and I- interacting with your environment and new information and making decisions properly. You know, it, yeah. it, it's all of that. It is and more and more because, yeah. you know, I always like to to joke with people that you had at least 10 years of physical education learning about, you know, how to stretch your hamstrings and how do we warm up and all this stuff that you did in PE class. You had at least one very awkward semester in sex ed class where you learned how to use those other parts of your body, you know, and protect them. There's no point in your education where someone teaches you how to use your brain. And your brain is the most complex object in the known universe. Most people don't realize. That doesn't mean it's complex to use, but it's a very complex organ, way more so than your heart or your lungs or anything like that. And it has certain requirements for how it works. So, you know, at the basic level, what's the right level of sleep and nutrition to power your brain and and keep it functionally optimally? But also, you know, how how does memory work? And how can we make things more memorable? And how can we store memories, review memories, maintain memories? So that's the kind of stuff that we teach in our books because there are, if you go to the world record holding memory champions, you know, people who can do amazing feats of memory, things like memorize 38 decks of cards back to back, forwards and backwards in an hour, every single one of them will tell you, I always thought I had a lousy memory. I always thought I had an, a, a below average memory and that's why I started training. None of them have a genetic advantage. And and so every single one of us, can you imagine if you had that skill of being able to memorize huge amounts of information and then you went back into the workplace or you went back into academia, you know, it would be like showing up to a water gun fight with a fire hose. Yeah. Yeah, man. And it, it's it's remarkable that that we have this ability and and potential and yet we don't know it or, or at least, and we even downplay it even, you know, like you just said with, um, right. people who have achieved great memory, great feats in memory, uh, who have, have always said, you know, I don't have great memory. Exactly. And it, it all comes down, Eric, to technique. Mm. It's all technique. And I think that's going to be very liberating for a lot of people because, uh, you don't have a bad memory. I, I love how people always tell me, Oh my gosh, I need to read your book. I have the worst memory. And I go, you really don't. But that's like saying, uh, you know, I have the, it's, it's like someone who's never weightlifted in their life going, Oh yeah, I'm destined to be absolutely weak. You know, I, I, you know, there's no chance I could ever be strong. You would never say that. You just know that it's a matter of training. And the same is very much true of memory. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent 
fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch-your-own-shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety in your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond well let's move into techniques a little bit here and and kind of you know roam around uh there's a couple different places i want to go obviously i want to talk about speed reading a bit i want to talk memorization and i want to eventually land on um what what a memory palace is and why it works because i think some people are familiar with it uh a lot yeah. of people are not i'm i'm very semi familiar with it i don't know that that's even a <laughs> real a real descriptor but let's start with speed reading because that's one where a lot of people have definitely heard of that term and p- potentially even tried it before i've been able to get my uh speed up and still mm-hmm. maintain comprehension and retention because again it's not all about speed because you know you you can read through something incredibly fast and then retain none of it and what good was that that's again that's efficiency versus effectiveness again exactly yeah so i want to preface any conversation about speed reading by saying there there's a lot of false science out there there's a lot of charlatans and when i talk about speed reading i'm not claiming that you can read 5,000 words per minute or photo read all that stuff has been disproven by science and in fact the science disproving that found that it is possible to reach about 600 words per minute with 100% comprehension and around 750 to 800 with 80% comprehension. And coincidentally, that's what we've been teaching and claiming for years and years. So, um, you know, the very, we use the very science disproving speed reading to prove that actually in clinical studies, people have been able to do exactly what we teach um, at around 600 to 750 words per minute. Now, the keys to speed reading, and again, another disclaimer, there is no purpose to learn how to speed read until you've learned how to improve your memory. Then you've learned how to Mm. store memories. And more importantly, even than that is review memories. Because I can teach you all the most amazing memory techniques on the planet. But if you don't review your memories, I mean, talk to any memory champion three weeks or a month after the competition, they don't remember anything they memorized, because there really needs to be systems of review. With all of that said, uh, the basics of speed reading haven't changed in the last 50 years. You want to move your eyes less because when your eyes are in motion, you're actually subject to something called cicadic masking or cicadic blindness, which basically means your eyes kind of flip flip off the optic nerve and you're not taking in new information. So if you can train your eyes to take in 
more, pay more attention to the blurry stuff on the sides, which is called the paraphobia, then uh, you can never make that clear. Uh, your eyes are, the, are your eyes. They work how they work. But you can train yourself to pay more attention to it. And that's actually how uh, people working uh, telescopes in submarines, they train to take in the entire horizon, even though it's blurry. You want to do that, and then you want to optimize the movements. And a lot of people, what they do is they spend a lot of time effectively reading the margins. They start looking at the first word of the fir- of the line and the last word of the line. And so you're wasting a lot of time effectively reading margins. Now, we stack all of those skills with, again, memory techniques, skills like pre-reading, which is, is I think, the biggest Easter egg in our methodology to in- in- enhance your comprehension and focus. And of course, skills like spaced repetition and reviewing what you've read in increasing intervals, because otherwise, you know, there are so many one-day or two-day speed reading seminars out there that claim to triple your reading speed, but then you get home and a week later you realize, wait a minute, I don't actually retain anything that I've been reading. And one of the other things I want to note here is... um this was something that I had to, I guess, unlearn. Uh, there's a lot of, the, the, I guess, the, in terms of increasing your speed and, and increasing your your comprehension, your retention, your memory, when it comes to reading, we have to unread, or, or not unread, we have to unlearn how we originally learned to read, which was phonetics. And in other words, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm alluding to sub-vocalizing. Right. We definitely have to unlearn a lot of that. Science has actually proven we cannot uh, completely eliminate subvocalization yes. <laughs> or that voice in your head. It's unfortunately never going to go uh, away, but we can minimize it. And the more we minimize it, the more we can uh, improve our reading speed, really. Well, we should probably explain what that means. I mean, ultimately, it means that, um, like, if I'm looking, like, right now, I see your name on my screen, and my brain wants to sound it out phonetically inside my head, even as I'm talking to you, which is kind of weird, um, schizophrenia, mind-wise. But, um, uh, but, but my mind also, through my eyes and to my brain, recognizes the characters and can recognize exactly. what that uh, what those characters represent without me having to sound it out. But again, at when we're young and we're originally learning to read, this is, I mean, my, I have a son who's actually, he's a great reader, but, and he, he gets faster and faster, but it's because he'll say something wrong. We'll say, oh, that's actually this, you know, with all the different quirks that are in the, well, all languages, but English specifically. Yeah. English is really messed up in, in a lot of ways where things that <laughs> should sound one way or sound completely different. And, he, you know, he'll say blued instead of blood. And I'll say, no, actually, in this instance, it's blood. And he's like, oh, okay. So he knows now, but he's sounding it out forever from that point forward. Right. So, right. And that's, there's, there's so much interesting stuff to say about that. Part of it is like, you would be surprised, but I, I speak four languages. I only speed read in the one because it takes time to develop that visual fluency where you just see a word. I mean, we've all seen those, you know, memes or pictures where someone writes something and everything but the first and last letter are rearranged in the middle of the word. Right. And we've all seen those and been like, holy crap, I can read that. It's because our brain is just looking at the shape, length, and and the beginning and end, and it's treating it like a symbol. So we can all do that, but uh, for me to do that in Russian or Hebrew is near impossible yet. I mean, so far, I, ha- I don't have as, as much experience under my belt reading those languages, which I just think is this really interesting, you know, if you want to learn to speed read in a language, part of the part of our caveat 
as we tell people, it, it usually doesn't work for people under the age of 13. It's not because they, their brains can't do it. It's just, they don't, they haven't been reading enough or long enough, um, to be able to do that. But you're absolutely right that with time, we learn to just take in those symbols. Well, and you said, uh, just a second ago, the phrase, uh, visual fluency, the phrase visual fluency triggers to me this aspect of learning that is all about uh, you know, sometimes people say photographic memory where like I can look at a, pa- I can look at a page, like I've got a page sitting here on my desk and there's a phrase there. Well, I can then look away from my desk, but I can still see that page in my head. And it's kind of that visual internalization, uh, learning, which I know is kind of part of this as well. Absolutely. And, and, you know, a good example is someone can show you a picture and you instantly recognize. In fact, you can recognize uh, a familiar face in about 150 milliseconds, and you can also ascertain the emotion on that face. So we're really fast at, at recognizing pictures. And a lot of speed reading is just getting to the point where you recognize words or groups of words as pictures. Yeah, man. So it uh, takes time though. I want to, I want to yes. give your audience a caveat here, which is it took me about four to five months to really get into the flow of this when I first learned. Uh, and if I take, you know, a few months away from really reading every day, I have to get back into the skill. So I call it in my book, I call it the skill of learning to walk on your hands. It's like you can learn to walk on your hands and with time you get practice and it's great and all is wonderful. It's always going to be more comfortable to walk on your feet. You know, when I get out of bed in the morning, I, I think to walk on my feet. So a lot of times when I sit down to read, I have to go, okay, remember speed reading, you know, because it's more natural to do what I did for 25 years before. And the other thing is if you don't walk on your hands for six months, uh, those joints and tendons and ligaments are going to tighten up and it's going to be real hard to do something that used to be easy for you. So this really is one of those, unlike the memory techniques, which it's like riding a bike. This is one of those use it or you'll lose it type skills. Yeah. So the muscle can atrophy in other words. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't love the, the metaphor of muscle for, for the brain, because the brain is a weird, yes. trippy thing. But I, I guess I would say the brain can readapt to le- reading the old way. Yeah, man. Uh, what else in terms of, we'll, we'll move on in a second, but in, in terms of speed reading, um, obviously there's so much more material. People can, and we're going to point to everything where you've got this, uh, outlined to where people can really dive in, uh, deeper. But any other key piece of, when it comes to speed reading specifically, uh, that we've missed so far? Well, it's not so much speed reading as pre-reading. Um, a lot of schools actually teach this. This is one thing they really get right, this SQ3R framework, which is survey, question, read, review, recall. And we've grouped the first two, survey and question, into what we call pre-reading. Um, but just this one skill has actually been proven to increase people's reading speed and people who do this are actually able to produce significantly more accurate summaries, which is a really good proxy for understanding uh, how well they comprehended and retained the text. And the idea is really simple. You are skimming each page, one to two seconds, looking for things that stand out, whether that's titles, numbers, proper names, bold, italics, uh, whatever, anything that stands out to you, weird words that you don't recognize. And as you see those words, you're generating questions. Those questions can be anything from, you know, why are they mentioning the word San Francisco in here? Or what happened in 1949? Or, oh, I bet they're going to make an argument about veganism here because I saw the word uh, heme protein. You're, you're trying to generate assumptions. And the reason you do that is the human brain cannot 
resist a good question. You know, if I ask you, uh, hey, Eric, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? You might try to ignore me, but you can't ignore the question. You immediately go. It's it's like, don't think of pink elephants, right? And so we can't resist those questions. And by generating those questions, we can increase our own focus, which helps us read and helps us comprehend and helps us not drift off. And that helps us read faster. So it's a really cool, powerful hack. I wish everything I taught uh, in my book could give as quick of a result and as much of a result in just 10 seconds. You know, just try this and it'll really change the way that you read. That's that's fascinating. And I love that because it feels like it's almost like, I, I don't know, it's it's almost like anchor points to, uh, you know, uh, it, it connect yourself Precisely. to, you know, it's almost like Spider-Man. It's like, oh, the, that, that's my next spot to grab. And then that's my next spot as I'm climbing the wall or something. I so, love that. Yeah, absolutely. And and there you go. That that also moves into the the continuous scrolling uh, of reading when you can when you can optimize that as well. So. Absolutely. So, so memory, um, obviously it's not all about speed. It's definitely about, and, and we're kind of going there with those anchor points. It's engaging with the, the material, the content of whatever it is that you're, that you're reading. Uh, and it's not just about reading, but you know, so many textbooks back and again in my high school and college mm-hmm. days, if I had been able to, if I had known about this and been able to apply it, uh, I would have been able to internalize and, uh, you know, engage with the content, engage with and, and create, you know, create those questions and then start to, right. uh, you know, do the critical thinking, which, which that's the point of education, right? Is to learn. It's not just about learning. It's about learning to learn. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, ironically. Absolutely. So, but, but the retention, the comprehension and the retention, uh, side of things. How can we, I mean, I, I know there's, there's a lot of different ways that we can outside of reading, uh, warm up our brain or not just warm up our brain, but mm-hmm. train our brain, uh, to be more retentive and more you know, and, and comprehend more. Uh, because again, we don't want to just read the material, say, okay, I got the reading done and then not know anything when we walk into wherever it is we needed to read it for. Uh, what can we do about this? The first thing is learning how to use your memory, right? And and you alluded to the idea of memory palaces before. Yes. Uh, memory palaces are incredible. I call it the mnemonic nuclear option in my book. But uh, you can even go simpler than that and just create visual mnemonics. And that's going to give you so much value. Just visualizing and creating novel visualizations for everything you want to memorize is going to dramatically improve your memory. In fact, Harry Lorraine, who was, you know, the godfather of modern memory improvement 1950s he wrote so many different books and went on you know so many different shows from johnny carson to the late show and he would memorize the entire audience he only used this one technique of visual mnemonics so that's the first thing you want to do is really learn how to master your memory and it's not as hard as you'd think you know i i always uh i joke on stage or when i'm doing presentations i'll say like here's how it works here's here's how every memory expert in the world does this they come up with silly pictures in their head. And I go, yeah, seriously, that's it. It's super anticlimactic, <laughs> but that's the trick. You know? So, so what's an example of that? Like a, a silly picture in your head that, that actually makes it work. So an example I always love to give is let's say I wanted to learn the word caber in Spanish. You could picture a taxi cab, a yellow taxi cab with a bear stuffed into it. And what's nice about that is the word caber means to fit in Spanish. So the visualization contains the meaning and the sounds, cab and bear. And it's a really silly image to come up with, but if you do it, you'll remember that tomorrow, cab, bear, 
Kaber. And you need to actually go in and visualize it in your mind's eye. But once you do, you'll remember it. The other day, I, uh, I was working with one of my certified coaches, and he's uh, hoping to specialize really in um, the IT world and business people. And he's going to be coaching in, in a lot of Silicon Valley companies. And we went to memorize this uh, slide deck that someone, you know, selling an IT solution would need to memorize. And I thought it was really funny. We wanted to memorize, okay, this is the target client profile of a CTO and what are they concerned about and how do you sell to the CTO of the company as opposed to the CEO? So it said something along the lines of, okay, you've got your CTO and he, his main concerns are the security, cost reduction, and smooth operations. Now, how did we memorize that? I said, you watch the show Silicon Valley? He goes, yeah. I go, who's the CTO on that show? He goes, it's obviously Guilfoyle, you know, this really ridiculous <laughs> character, you know, that everyone loves. And, but picture any CTO. This will work with, you know, if you know who the CTO of Microsoft is and you follow them or the CTO of Google or whatever. But you picture a CTO that you know. And then I go, okay, their first concern is security. Let's put a security camera in their hand. Just visualize Guilfoyle holding a security camera. His second concern is cost reduction. So I want you to picture in his other hand, he's squeezing his wallet, just trying to squeeze it as tight as he can, reduce the cost of the solution. Then I go smooth operations. Well, that's pretty simple. I want you to imagine his shirt is open and his chest is shaved smooth and you see that he just had open heart surgeries. So he has a scar all the way down to his belly button smooth operations. You know, how easy is that? Now, if everyone remembers that and visualizes that, you'll actually remember that for days or weeks without even reviewing it. You need to review it at some point, but how much more engaging and entertaining is that than trying to memorize a list of three things that CTOs want to, uh, you know, have when they buy a tech solution? Okay. So I didn't write that down. Let me see if I can do this with the mental picture. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm picturing Guilfoyle because I do like that show. Um, yep. Security camera in hand. So he's, uh, it's security. He's clenching his wallet. So he's, uh, cost reduction. And then mm-hmm. his shirt is open and it's smooth, um, operation because of the scar. Got it. Yep. You got it. And how fast is that? I mean, that was we quick. all know, like, memorize. Yeah, it's like, quick. Now, like we didn't do if any... I didn't have to explain it to yeah. you if you just generated that instantly in your mind. Yeah, boom, and and, and to be there. fair, like I didn't cheat or anything. I didn't write that down as you said it originally. <laughs> like that was all off the top of my head. But the visualization again. This is what I uh, was alluding to earlier about um, when you said the phrase uh, "visual fluency." Like that, right? That was fluency that I was just um, exhibiting right there. So. And that's exactly. And you know, people always think like. Oh, I wish I had an eidetic memory. I wish I had a photographic memory. And my answer is you do. You just don't know how to use it. And what we teach, I mean, what I've just taught your audience, run with it. Like you can use that and, and that's all you need to know to have a massive improvement in your memory. Now, if you want to win competitions, there's some hacks and, and ways of compressing the symbols and training, like that stuff's different. And we teach that, but all we teach in our courses is, okay, I now have that skill. How do I adapt that? How do I memorize numbers? How do I memorize names, faces, foreign language words, word for word speeches or poems, Bible verses? I mean, there's an adaptation to everything, including mathematical formulas and scientific formulas. And, and that's what we teach in our courses is how do I take this master skill that by the way has been around for 2,500 years. The ancient Greeks discovered it. 
how do I take that skill and now apply it to everything so that I'm using it in my everyday world? How do I walk into a room my first day on the job and memorize everybody's name without making a mistake? Okay, so how does the memory palace uh, factor into this? Yeah, so at the more advanced level, you want to use a memory palace, which is basically imagine a layout of a building you know, such as your home, office, uh, you know, your childhood home, whatever it may be, your favorite grocery store. Your brain is actually storing those locations automatically, and you cannot forget them. I mean, they're in there because of survival advantage. Your brain will just never forget the locations of many of the places that you spend time in. And so the memory palace technique is taking that symbol, for example, Guilfoyle with a shade chest and placing it in a logical place within that space in your mind. So imagining, for example, you know, say that's slide number one on the slide deck, you go into your childhood home and the first thing you see on the right, whether that may be a shoe closet or a coat hanger, you just put Guilfoyle on there. And then you go to the next slide and you do it again. Now, the memory palace is useful for a couple different things. One, it allows us to create perfect knowledge of something. So if I wanted to memorize the key ideas of a book, I don't need a memory palace, right? No big deal. I just go to my Kindle notes and review and go back to my visualizations. But if I'm memorizing a speech and I don't want to mess up on stage or I need to memorize, you know, the exact order of uh, 500 digits, for stock trading or whatever it may be, um, it's really, really powerful. So anything where you need order or a huge amount of information that you want to catalog uh, perfectly. So for example, learning different words in a new language, you might learn 2000 different words. And of course, you want to organize them by what they mean. So you don't just remember the word, you remember what it means. You want to know what part of speech it is. So you don't accidentally use an adverb as an adjective and sound, you know, Sillily, when you're speaking the new language, you want to sound silly, not sillily. So you create this organization structure. You literally, I call it cognitive infrastructure. You literally build an imaginary infrastructure in your brain that can just store this like you would store books in a library. So so how does this work in terms of like, uh, like for example, I, I'm in my home right now and that's, you know, mm-hmm. I know the physical layout to that place. Do I use that as a template for multiple palaces or uh, do I use other buildings for other, uh, what's the word? Categorizing. So memory palaces are free. They're free. So they don't, the more you make, it doesn't cost you any more. Right. So I recommend making more and more and more. I also teach in the book how you want to tailor which memory palace you use for the situation or subject. So for example, Uh, let's say you live in a five bedroom house and you're learning the NATO phonetic alphabet, which has 24 you know, characters, alpha, most people know this, but alpha, bravo, charlie, delta, echo, foxtrot, india, da, 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 hotel india. So uh, what a pity to waste a five-bedroom house. So I might, for me, when I did the NATO phonetic alphabet, I just used this tiny, tiny little hardware store, which is downstairs on my block, you know? Um, So you want to plan ahead and think. For my TED Talk, I was like, okay, I have eight different paragraphs and I want each one of those to be separated smartly, you know, intentionally. And so I used a different larger palace. Uh, But you do want to create more and more palaces because the the technique is obnoxiously effective. And if you reuse a memory palace, you might experience bleed. In fact, it's a totally different skill if you're going to compete at, at the, at, if you're going to do this on a competitive level, it's a different skill to learn how to reuse and wipe memory palaces. 
Yeah, man. Yeah, it's it's almost like having duplicate, uh, you know, Google Docs or something with yep. pre-existing templates and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, very very interesting. I'm I really I, I personally am intrigued by this, and, and, and let me just more than intrigued. I'm fascinated. Like I want to jump full into this, and I know you've got resources for that. So I would love for us to, or for you specifically, to point us towards, um, you know, one, not only your podcast, but uh, you've got courses, you've got books, like, let's just list it all off because people, I think, are on the hook here and thinking, you know what, I want to, ju- I want to dive in uh, to this a, a bit more as well, like, like I am. Totally. Yeah. So a good place to start, if you want to check out the book, you can go to superhumanacademy.com slash book. Really easy. And um, you can pick up a copy. I kept it intentionally short because, you know, the irony is people come to me because they they read slowly and have a hard time getting through books. So I kept it short. It's under 200 pages. You can read it and it's going to teach you the basics of the techniques. Um, I also encourage people to subscribe at superhumanacademy.com. We put out a new podcast or video every week. Uh, so that's a great way. And for people who are serious and really want to learn this, you can go to becomeasuperlearner.com and we actually have a 10-week masterclass um, that will take you through every single step in 20 to 30 minutes a day over the course of 10 weeks. And that actually includes the time you spend practicing, applying, and reading. So it's a little bit more of a time commitment, but uh, we've put thousands of people through that program uh, and it's really, really effective. And now we've started adding certified coaches. So when you enroll in that program, you actually get a free consultation with a coach who's going to help you set goals and keep you accountable. And that's all all baked into the program. So uh, that URL is becomeasuperlearner.com. Awesome. I will link up to uh, everything that we just listed out uh, in the show notes for this episode. And uh, I'm really looking forward to diving in myself. And I invite everybody else awesome. that's listening to, to join me because this will be really fun. Uh, I mean, it's going to be hard work too, but it's going to be fun, hard work, rewarding, totally. especially, you know, so totally. This is great. Uh, Jonathan, it's been great talking with you. Um, I'm really excited to Likewise. jump in. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say other than thank you. This has been great. Thank you for sharing. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Eric. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Jonathan Levi and got some really cool tips, tricks, tools, and or a perspective change out of this conversation as you listened. If you know of somebody that needs to hear this conversation about speed reading or memory or learning to learn better or even memory palaces, I would love for you to do me the favor of sharing this episode with them. You can do that most easily by just hitting the share button on whatever your podcast player app of choice is that you're listening to this right now or or head on over to the show notes for this episode at beyondthetodolist.com slash 302. You can hit the share button there as well, as well as find the show notes and the sponsors that make this episode possible. Thanks again for sharing. Thanks again for listening. And I'll see you next episode.